0: Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's the Bible close to you in our pew, and I would encourage you to uh, pick up one of those. Our passage passage this morning is on page 815 in the pew Bible. As you're turning there, the kids can be dismissed to children's church, and as they head out, the rest of us we think about Matthew chapter 10. We have been in this passage over the past several weeks. as uh, pastors often do, I had a plan to preach through this chapter in just a few weeks, but it's expanded, and there's going to be one more week after this week, all right? So, I'm um, enjoying the passage, some real challenges for us. As we think about where we are in Matthew chapter 10, at the end of the chapter, in verse chapter 9, we see Jesus going throughout the regions of Galilee. Healing people, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, uh, teaching, doing all kinds of incredible things. And as he sees the needs of the people around him, he concludes chapter 9 by saying this He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As Jesus looks around and he sees the multitude of needs, he realizes these needs are an overwhelming. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And in verse 38, he says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. As we see this idea that Jesus is calling for the disciples to be praying that God would send people to be proclaiming this message that he is teaching, and he's given them authority to do the same things that he is doing. And then the very next passage, we see Jesus call the 12 disciples to himself and then tell them to go. And what we saw in that is that that, that we can be the answer to our own prayer. That we need to be praying that God would send laborers, that he would send people into our towns, into our communities, into our neighborhoods, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we have an opportunity to answer that prayer by us going. But then we look, as we go, sometimes we recognize or think that it it, it certainly is very commendable for us to go, very praiseworthy for us to go, but where we go can be dangerous, because in chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus tells us that he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So, I'm sending you pray to send laborers, go, be a laborer. And by the way, as you go, I'm sending you a bunch a bunch of wolves. And you smell like a lamb, and you're gonna smell really good to the wolves who would just as soon eat you. And and then he so he he says this and he tells them about the fact that, that they're in the midst of all of this, that that they should expect to be flogged, to be dragged into court to be rejected by family members, to be hated by all and possibly killed. That, that's where we ended last week. And then, this morning, verse 26, look how it begins. Matthew 10:26. So, have no fear of them. Now, let's just push a pause button there. If... If I'm one of the disciples, and I'm paying really close attention to what Jesus is saying, He's saying, Go, do all of these things. As you go, I'm sending you to the wolves, and they're gonna they're gonna chew on you. Uh, they're gonna chew on you, they're gonna they're they're gonna eat you a little bit, and they may even kill you. But what how's verse 26 say? Says what? But don't be afraid. If, if, if I'm the disciples, I'm like, what? Don't be afraid. You've just told me that people are, everybody's going to hate me. You've just told me that I'm going to be dragged into court. I'm going to be flogged. You've just told me that I, my family might hate me and that I'm going to be killed, potentially. But don't be afraid. So like, how do we answer that? Well, we have to keep reading because we need to think. What's going on here? So, have no fear of them. It goes on in verse 26. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. I'm going to stop right there in this first section. What Jesus is saying to them is he's telling them, Listen, you are going into dangerous territory. And there are, on a very human level, lots of reasons to be afraid. But he's saying to them in this that that he is the good shepherd... And the good shepherd is leading his sheep. And if he's going to lead his sheep into danger, he's going to be with them. And he tells them in verse 26 that, that whatever is nothing covered, there's nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. And, and what he is saying there is that you may be persecuted, you may be lied about, you may be slandered, but God's going to allow the truth to be known. And there's a there's a principle that I see in this that I think is really helpful for us just to understand in our daily lives. And this is the principle that truth and time walk hand in hand. It's this principle that truth and time walk hand in hand? Because oftentimes it is easy for us to think, well, I'm not sure I want to speak the truth, or or or, or I say something and somebody slanders us, and somebody lies about us, or somebody says things about us that aren't true. What's our first response? I don't know about you, but my first response is not a humble like, "Well, it'll all get figured out." I want to defend myself. I want to say, "Who do you think you are?" You know, how can you get away with that? I want to set the record straight. I don't want to allow time to sort it out. I want to, I want to set the record straight. But earlier in chapter ten, we saw Jesus say, "Whenever you're brought before courts and all that," he says, "Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you words." And here he's saying that whatever's hidden, whatever's covered, it's going to be revealed. And so while you may be slandered, you may be made fun of, you may be mocked over time, it's going to become clear. The truth will prevail. And we think about that even in our own context and relationships. Oftentimes somebody is mad at you for something you did, and you know what you did was right, you know that it was true, what you said wasn't a lie, and you may be slandered for that. That realizing that if we oftentimes will just be patient, let time go on, that in time the truth will be revealed, which demonstrates in us a confidence in God, a confidence in God's sovereignty that I don't have to be the one who makes everything right, as I'm seeking to live for God and seeking to be a godly person and, and may be persecuted because of it, if I'm, my job is to stay faithful and let God sort out the details. Well, he goes on and not only saying that, that, that truth in time, that as you are persecuted, that in time things will be made clear. In verse 27, he says this. What I, that Jesus, tells you, those are disciples in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And these disciples, they're with Jesus 24 hours a day. They're with him all the time. And they've heard him teach publicly. And they know that they're supposed to take what he says publicly and go tell the world about it. But here he's also telling them, listen, the things that you hear me whisper, we're in the middle of the night having a conversation. Everything that I'm saying to you is truth. And it needs to be made known. And and he says to them, he says, what you hear in the dark, stay in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. And he says, this message that I'm giving to you, I'm calling you to go into the the fields, the laborers are few. Go, be a laborer, make this gospel known. And as we've talked over the last few weeks, that we believers in Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to be taking the gospel outside of our walls of our church to people who don't know the gospel or don't understand the gospel or have wrong ideas about the gospel. That's our responsibility we've talked about the fact that that you and i may have you have neighbors around you that need to hear the gospel. I mean, here's a question. How many of you have family members that don't know Jesus Christ as their savior and you want them to? Anybody else? Here's a question. Who do you think God wants to be who do you think but let me ask it differently. Who do you hope God uses to tell them the gospel? I'm confident most of us hope somebody else does. But God has put us in those relationships. God has put us close to those people for a purpose, to go and to speak. And here he's telling his disciples to speak it in the light, to shout it from the rooftop, to not be holding back, but to be full disclosure with the gospel. And so we must recognize that, that whenever we face persecution, whenever we face the threat of unpopularity, when people don't like us because of the gospel, we must not shrink into the shadows. I'm a little, I'm a little burdened about where, what, what the church in our country is going to do as the persecution steps up. As people think less and less about Christians, as they think less and less about people who hold to a biblical truth, And what will we do? Do we kind of retreat into the shadows and just kind of hunker down in our own churches and just keep truth amongst ourselves? Or are we willing to go to the wolves and to speak the truth on the housetops, to speak it in the light? Well, the passage goes in then in verse 28, and it says this, and he says it again, Do not fear. Second idea. He said earlier, don't fear. And here he says, do not fear. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Isn't it amazing? He is saying to us, if somebody is going to kill you for the gospel, don't be afraid of them. You think, yeah, but I might die. Right. Here's a truth that we need to understand, that we need to recognize that there is something more important than just living. Do you realize that? That living isn't the most important thing about life. That the most important thing about our lives is us glorifying God with the lives he has given to us. And and, and we certainly, we need to be wise as serpents as we engage with others. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to just put our head on the chopping block and say, go ahead and cut it off. We need to be wise but to recognize, recognize that, that, that even if the gospel would cost us our lives, that's not the most important thing. And, and, and listen, we, what burdens me is that we live in a culture where we're, most of us are not going to face dying for our faith. I mean, the reality is we, most of us are citizens of the North America. Unless something radically change, most of us will never face dying for Christ. And we think, so, well, why is he telling us all this? And why do we need to hear this today? I think we need to hear this today is because that we're told not to fear those who will kill us. I think that we also need to recognize that we must not fear those who won't like us. Because the reality of our culture, that's what we're typically much more worried about, is people not liking us, slandering us saying things that aren't true of us we don't like that i don't like that and we easily allow the fear of man to become the controlling factor in us and we'll say jesus i would die for you somebody has a gun to my head and says deny jesus or be shot and die i'm not denying you i'm taking the bullet and i'll see you in glory but over here we're having a conversation across the table with somebody about the gospel and they say you really believe all that you believe like Jesus is coming back on a white horse? The people who, I mean like good people who die and don't trust Jesus, that they're far from God, that they, they wouldn't go to heaven? You really believe that marriage should be one man and one woman? Are you serious? And with a furrowed brow and they have this judgmental attitude over you? They were like, oh, well, let, let, me, let me explain it. And we kind of soft pedal maybe retreat to the shadows a little bit. I mean, bold as a lion if we think a gun is in our head. But I, I'm not so sure that if I won't speak up with somebody who doesn't like me, that I will actually be willing to die. I think sometimes we think more of ourselves than maybe where we really are. I mean, I would ask you, when, when have you faced that? Have you found yourself kind of backing away in your Christian, Christian witness because somebody was a little, um, well, they disagree with you. And we need to be gentle as doves. We need to be wise as serpents. But we're sheep who are called to go. And are we going? And so we need to see in this context. The first point in your outline is this, that we need to get our fear right. We need to get our fear right. We must not fear the wolves who won't like us, who would lick their chops and looking at us, the wolves who would, would, would slander us and say bad things about us, and the wolves that would kill us, that we must not fear them. And our passage then goes on in verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Rather, he says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? Who is it that can destroy the soul and the body in hell? That's God. He is saying to us, listen, you don't need to fear man. If there's a fear you're going to have, it needs to be the fear of God. Because he says that God is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. So rather than fearing the wolves that can kill us, we need to fear the one who should destroy us in hell, but who loves us instead. Here's, here's what we understand about this. There, again, there is something worse than physical death. It is eternal death. It is an eternal destruction. The, the, Bible, the Bible is not talking in parables and is, in, in, in symbolism when it talks about a place called hell. The Bible describes it as a real place of outer darkness, as a lake of fire as of a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think this the weeping and gnashing of teeth and we understand when it's talking about hell is I think there's this weeping of people who like I missed it. I was blind. I thought I was saved but I was living my life and hoping that my works were going to be enough to get me to heaven and I was wrong and I thought that I was righteous enough and there are tears in hell because of it. But I also think when it says of gnashing of teeth, that there will be people that when they're in hell, they will hate God every bit as much as they do now. And gnashing their teeth and thinking, how dare you send me to a place like this? I don't deserve this. And, all, and just a hatred towards God. But in both cases, they're suffering. And we see this weeping and gnashing of teeth because of rebellion against God. And oftentimes people say, well, hell's pretty unreasonable. I'm not sure that I like that. And that's our culture today. I mean, most people think it doesn't seem reasonable that God would send someone to hell. A good God wouldn't do that. Well, two things. God is good. And God is 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 good and and, and God is good and God is a judge. He judges our actions. And we must realize that what does a good judge do to criminals? If somebody broke into your house, stole all your stuff, and they steal all their, your stuff, and if the day after you forgot to pay your insurance, and so you don't have insurance now, all your stuff got stolen, and this person is a criminal, and they got caught, and they didn't steal your video surveillance camera, so you got them on video, they get tried, the evidence is all there, it's clear, they're guilty... And they go before the judge and they say to the judge, but judge, I know that you're a good and you're a compassionate judge and you're a loving judge and and I'm asking you just to let me go. And the judge says, you know, you're right. I am a good judge. So I'm just going to let that go. Here's the question. Is that a good judge? That's not a good judge. That judge is actually wicked because he doesn't punish crime. As we think about the God of the heavens, the God of the universe, he is good. And he will see that justice is served. And so a good God does judge sin, does send people to hell. But then the question becomes, well, but it doesn't seem reasonable. Because, I mean, if my sins don't seem to be weighty enough to deserve eternal punishment in hell. And we've talked about this illustration in the past. But imagine this, uh, an illustration of lying, Right? And let's suppose that I lie uh, to my son. I say, hey, um, on Saturday when you get home, we're going to go fly fishing, we're going to have dinner, and we're going to hang out together. And he's like, fantastic, sounds great. Saturday afternoon comes and I'm not home. And he calls, Dad, where are you? And I say, uh, I'm Dairy Queen. What are you doing? I'm eating ice cream. I'm a Dairy Queen. And uh, he says, I thought we were going fishing. Nope, I lied. And I just flat lie. Here's the question. What kind of consequences can my son pour out on me because of my lying? I mean, he might be mad at me and all that kind of stuff, but actually he's driving the truck that we're paying for. I mean, there's not a whole lot he can do. But now, let's suppose I tell Trisha that. Not go fishing. She would not want to do that. I say, "Hey, we're going to go out to dinner later, honey, on Saturday afternoon, and uh, we're going to go at four o'clock, and we'll go to Indy and hang out, have a nice time together." And she's like, "Fantastic. Saturday afternoon. she's away doing something comes home. I'm not there. She calls me, says, "Where are you?" And I says, "I'm fishing without Caleb." And, um, <laughs> and, um, and she says, "I thought we were, I thought we were going out." I says, "Nope, I lied." OK? Are the consequences that I would face from Tricia, my wife, greater than what I would face from my son? Yes, they would. Now, let's suppose that, now, let's suppose it's in the work world. And and I say to uh, my employer that I'm going to have a project done. This is all, they say it's really important to have it done. I said I'm going to have it done. And uh, I say, they say, do you get it done? I said, yep, I got it done. And so I go fishing with ice cream. And uh, so I'm fishing, and my employer calls and says, I thought that report was supposed to be done. You said that report was done. I says, nope, it's not done. I lied. What happens to me now? I get fired. Now, one more thing. Let's suppose I'm fishing, and I see somebody commit a crime while they're fishing. I don't know what they did, but they get caught and uh, I, they know that I was a witness, and I get called to the court, and the judge asks, is asking me questions, and the judge asks me, did you see this, and he's asking me the details, and I lie to the judge. Now what can happen to me? I can go to jail now for perjury. Now here's the deal. What did, in all of those illustrations, what was the same? I lied. My lie that's, quote, no big deal to my son is a monstrous deal to a judge in a courtroom, right? And if a human judge can send me to jail for one lie, for I don't know what the term could be, maybe for months. Now I start to ask myself, well, Steve, how many lies do you think you've told in your life? And I ask you the question, and I ask you how often have you maybe um, looked at somebody with lust? Use God's name in vain. Stolen stuff. Start to add up your sins. I mean, if we would just, he's as simple as let's suppose you just sin three times a day. You get up, the alarm clock goes off, and you curse the alarm clock. It's Monday morning. There's one. You get in the shower. Shower's cold. You're frustrated about that. Grumble and complain about that. And then you go downstairs and you burn your toast. You're not even out of the house yet. You're three sins. Okay? Now, let's suppose, let's say three sins. Three sins a day. Let's start when you're. 10 years old and now you're 40 years old 30 years three sins a day thousand a year that's how many 30,000 sins if a human judge could send us to jail for one lie for long periods of time it now becomes reasonable to us that a holy perfect god who is infinitely greater than the judge and more than just my one sin but this multitude of sins all of a sudden, I realize I'm in huge trouble before him. And that helps us to understand when we read about this God who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, that God takes sin very seriously. Now, we know that in this message of Jesus, though, that there's hope. That I don't have to stand before God on my own record and stand with my sins that through the gospel I know that Jesus Christ took my sins upon Himself and He died on the cross and He endured the punishment that I deserve and He endured that and then He rose from the dead. He became my substitute. And if I repent of my sins and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner, forgive me that Jesus takes my sins and then He gives me His perfect righteousness and because of that I can be forgiven, cleansed, made new and have a right standing with God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is not simply the escape to he- from hell, but it also motivates us to love this God who would do that for us. And so we hear in this context uh, back to this idea of not fearing man, but fearing the one who should destroy us in hell, but who loves us. Now, next week I'm going to we're going to spend time next week diving into this a little further because the question for a believer becomes what does it look like to fear god as a believer because should we fear god and what does the fear of god look like what does love where does love intersect with that and and it's going to come from this section but so next week those questions we don't have time this morning all right but those are questions you should be asking so what does it mean for me to fear god what does it mean for me to love god because if i'm supposed to fear god but 1 john 4:18 says but perfect love casts out fear It should be kind of scratching your head a little bit. And next week, we'll scratch it and give some answers a little bit. But for now, what we need to recognize is that he says to fear this. But verse 29 then, right on the heels of saying, fear this God who could destroy your body in hell. Look what it says, the very next verse. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And it's this interesting link of fearing God, but not fearing God, uh, fearing God who loves us. That God loves us more than what He says He loves us more than these little sparrows. On Tuesday morning, I, um, and as we just think about just life and how God throws things at us on. Tuesday morning, I um, there was one of the men who were at Trinity um, started earlier this year, and his funeral was this week. Died of a drug overdose, um, heartbreaking kind of a thing. And I, I got to this funeral early, and I'm sitting outside, so I was um, doing some work. We're actually working on my sermon a little bit, because I got there early. And there's this little sparrow bouncing around, and they're thinking they are a worthless bird. I mean, there's not, I mean I don't think you can even make like Chicken wings out of Nothing. I mean, there's nothing. Alright? And they make a mess and all that. But this verse says God cares about them. And seeing at that funeral, I recalled what one commentator said about this. That there's one commentator, he said this, that God attends the funeral of every sparrow. Which is a beautiful picture to remind us our God cares for us. That our God loves us. And if we understand that that this idea of of getting our fear right, that this God that we fear is a God that loves us and has given His Son for us. And what we see is this fear takes on a whole different category. It's It's not this trembling fear and wanting to move away from God, but it's this reverential, affectionate fear that would make us draw near to Him because He loves us we see this, that God knows about all those sparrows. Verse 30, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. God cares about us. I mean, to that degree. And we realize that all those little details matter. And we continue in this passage then, that we see, we see in this, that we see that God is this, he, we're his sheep, that he is a sovereign shepherd. He is a sovereign shepherd. He is a good, good father. He sends us into wolves. He sends us to take his message. He sends us with a purpose, but he doesn't abandon us. He loves us and he cares about us. And there's nothing that's going to come our way that is contrary to his perfect will for us. Even if that would mean our death. He loves us to that degree. As we continue in our passage, it says in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, so we're acknowledging him, we're declaring his truth, we talk of him before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But the one who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And very simply, I would say this, that what are these verses teaching us? These verses are teaching us that we need to be willing to speak about others, we need to speak to others about Jesus, the way we want Jesus to speak to the Father about us. Let me say that again, that we need to speak to others about Jesus the way we want the Father. We want Jesus to speak to the Father about us. So I'm denying Jesus by my actions, the curled brow that I'm looking across the table from, and I think, "Ah, I back away from Jesus. Is that how I want Jesus talking to me? About To the Father? Backing away? Do I want Jesus kind of moving into the shadows whenever my name comes up and my sins come up and the reason why I should go to hell? Or do I want Jesus to proudly proclaim, no, Steve is my servant. He is faithful to me. He put his trust into me. My account is on his record, Father. You don't treat him the way he deserves to be treated, but treat him the way that I I deserve to be treated in my perfection. And we see that exchange, and that is, as we speak to others about God, that is what our desires should be. Well, as we continue on in this passage, let's look at verse 34. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now, this is tough stuff, right? This is a hard, hard section. Because when um, when Jesus was born, and the shepherds came, and they said, Peace on earth. I, know, I thought Jesus came to bring peace. But now Jesus is saying to us, do not think that I came to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And again, if we're thinking hard, we begin to scratch our heads and think, what is, I thought, thought he's the prince of peace. And he is. But what does this look like? And it says in verse 36, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This idea, this sword, is a sword of division. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is hard teaching. Because it is teaching us that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings division. It brings division because Jesus is the light. And we read in John chapter 3 that in the world we love darkness. And when light invades our lives and we become followers of Jesus, we are walking contrary to the direction of the world. And sometimes that's our own family. And it can bring divisions within the family. And so as we think about this message this morning, that we not only need to get our fear right, we also need to get our love right. That we need to, we are called to love God first. We're called to love Him most, and we're called to love Him increasingly. We're called to love God above everything else. Because He's more valuable, He's more worthy, He's more lovely, more lovable than everything else. We just we need to give him put Him in the right place. We need to love Him above all else. We need to love Him more than everything else. And then we need to continually stretch ourselves to love Him beyond everything else. First, most, increasingly, that's how we are to love God. And yet, there are things that compete with this. And one of the things that compete with this is family. We are to love God more than we love our family. Now, that's hard from an experience standpoint. Easy from a theology standpoint. Easy from a theology standpoint. Why? Because if I love my family more than I love God, what have I turned my family into? It's an idol. That's bad, right? Idolatry is sin. Alright? And so when I love some, something more ahead of God, more, that, that that's sin because it's idolatry. And and we live in a culture where we are applauded for making our families our idols. Now, now listen, this is not saying don't love your father, don't love your mother, don't love your... It doesn't say that. It says if we love them more than we love God. And see, listen, I think some of the ways that we do this practically is that I know I need to speak this truth to my wife because... She's just not seeing it. But I know if I say it, she's going to be mad at me. But I really think God would want me to say it. But if I don't say it, it's just easier if I don't say it. And maybe somebody else will. Maybe one day she'll get it. And so I don't do it. Why? Because I love peace and I love that more than I love being an instrument of God in the life of my spouse. My kids need to hear truth. And I'm hoping that youth pastor will tell them. Because I don't want to tell them. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. Blah, blah, blah. Kind of, a million excuses. Why? So what's the result? I love me and my comfort more than I love God. And probably more than I love my child. But we think about this. It is so easy. We live in an idolatrous culture where we turn idols into everything. And family is a good thing. God's organized our families. God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's huge. That's huge. Wives submit to your husbands as 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 Christ um, as the church submits to Christ. Huge idea, but we are called to love God first, most, and increasingly. And here's the deal, though. Listen, if you love God this way, first, most, and increasingly, you won't love your family less. You will love your family better. You see, there's a distinction. God doesn't call us to, okay, I want you to love me more and love other stuff less. God doesn't say that. Because when we we elevate our love for Him, our love for other things that are good and right and holy, that love increases as well. Because I begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ. I'm reflecting Christ clearer and clearer because I'm loving God first and most and so I be an instrument of truth and love in the lives of other people. As a result, listen, Loving God first, most, increasingly does not mean loving other, th- other people that are, and other things less, that we will actually love them better. Well, we need to get our love right. We need to love Him first, most, increasingly. We need to love Him more than we love our families. Verse 38 says this, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We not only need to love God first, most increasingly, more than we love our family, we must also love God more than we love ourselves. Deny ourselves. We live in a culture that says celebrate yourself. We live in a culture that says you are the most important thing and you should love yourself more than anything else because if you don't love yourself, you can't love other people correctly and blah, 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 blah. Listen, you love yourself sufficiently. Even if you say, but I don't like myself. And you think about things about yourself that you don't like. Listen, even in that, who are you still thinking about all the time? I'm thinking about me all the time. What I deserve, what I should have, what I don't have, what I wish I looked like, what I don't look like, and how life should have worked out for me. Life hasn't worked out about me, and it's all about me. And Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and, and and what's a cross lead to? Death. Take up a cross and follow Him. It says, "Whoever finds his life will lose it," and this is countercultural because in our culture, we're said find yourself, identify yourself however you want to identify yourself this way, find your true person inside yourself, understand who you are, find yourself, live it, express it, and that will be the fullness of life. And Jesus says to us, He who finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, surrender all to him, follow him, I find life. And then he says in verse 40, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives a, one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. We understand what's going on in this context. Jesus is saying to us that we need to get our reward right. Why is it that we want most? He says, if you receive a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. What's going on there? If you receive a prophet, you're receiving the prophet's message. That's how you receive a prophet. The prophet says, repent and believe. I repent and believe. I receive the prophet. As a result of that, I get the prophet's reward. And I believe the prophet's reward is, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's that from the Father. The righteous person. Who re- if we receive a righteous person, we receive a righteous person's reward. What does that mean? I believe that if we receive a righteous person, that means somebody is living according to God's standard. We accept that standard that they're living by. We think it's noble, it's right, it's good. I accept that standard. I live according to it. I receive the righteous man's reward. What's that? Well done, my good and faithful servant. I've received God's word. I'm receiving God's standards. But then he says, in the last one, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to another disciple will by no means lose reward. And I believe what's going on there, if I receive a disciple, I'm receiving the one who the disciple is following. As a result of that, I follow, I'm receiving the one who is following. I receive his reward as well, which is well done. But what I need to see, what we want to see in this, is that receiving the servants of God brings a reward. But in verse 40, it says, Whoever receives you, okay, so you're going declaring God's word, If they receive you, which means they're receiving the word that you are giving, it says if they receive you, they receive me, that's Jesus, and whoever receives him, Jesus receives him who sent me. So if we receive the message of God, we receive the Father. And that's our greatest reward. Do we realize that God is indeed our greatest reward? There's nothing worse for us than being separated from God the Father. Nothing worse than that. And then she also tells us there's nothing better than being united with God the Father. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about God. He is our greatest reward. He is what it's not about heaven, the location. What makes heaven great is that God's there. Well, what makes heaven wonderful is that God's there, the one who gives us life and breath and every good thing. And so as we see this this morning, that if we are going to follow Jesus correctly, if we are going to go as laborers into the harvest, as we are going to endure the persecution from the wolves, that we need to make sure that we're getting our discipleship right, that God would indeed be our greatest fear, our greatest love, and our greatest reward. And the question for you this morning, for us this morning, is Does your life communicate this? That God is your greatest fear, your greatest love, and your greatest reward? Does your schedule, would your family agree? Would those close to you agree that those things, that God is the greatest of all these things for you? I want to encourage you this morning as we wrap up here in just a moment to be asking God to open your eyes and heart to see him as he truly is through the lens of Jesus Christ and that you would embrace him as your greatest fear, as your greatest love, and your greatest reward. We're going to pray, and then as we pray, I just want to encourage you to reflect on what we've said. The bottom of your notes are some things in the backside or some things to think about uh, we're going to receive our morning offering at this time as well so if ushers will come let us pray together heavenly father we are so grateful that you have loved us Lord. you've loved us in a way don't deserve and lord because you are you are god and because you are everything that you say there's a level of fear that we should have not a fear that runs away from you but draws near to you with humble reverence Help us to love you first, most, and increasingly. And Lord, I pray this morning too that, that, that you would help us in the midst of all of this, that we would see you as the greatest reward that we could ever receive. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It is in his name we pray, amen.